It's Thursday, April 26th, and this is The Daily Dive. We're getting ready for another statewide teacher walkout, this time in Arizona. Teachers in over 1,000 schools will walk out as part of the Red for Ed campaign. They are asking for a 20% salary increase, among other demands, as Arizona Governor Doug Ducey is trying to avoid a prolonged walkout that could affect over 800,000 students. We will speak to reporter Raul Ruelas from the Arizona Republic, who is stationed at the Arizona House of Representatives in Phoenix. We will also talk about the first of its kind memorial opening today in Montgomery, Alabama, a lynching memorial. We'll speak with history professor Jason Ward from Mississippi State University about the memorial and who it remembers. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. For many of us, this is a devotion that has left us living paycheck to paycheck and sometimes leaving our family's needs at the wayside. Every single day, Every single student in the state of Arizona is being underfunded. And by doing so, we are throwing away an entire generation's opportunity at academic success. Joining us now is Richard Ruelas. He's a reporter for the Arizona Republic. Uh, Richard, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm actually speaking to you from the lobby of the Arizona House of Representatives. Oh, excellent. Tell us a little bit about this teacher walk later today. Uh, I'm reading that it might impact over 800,000 students, about 100 Arizona school districts and charters are uh, going to be walking out. Over a thousand schools are going to be participating in this walkout. It uh, seems like it's going to be the biggest one in recent history. Yes, that's what at least our reporters who've looked at various uh, districts and schools, that's what they've been able to put together as far as the number participating. Obviously, we won't know until later today when uh, there's supposed to be a rally starting at uh, our ballpark in downtown Phoenix and walking to the state capitol, which is about uh, 19 blocks west of there. They're expecting a crowd in the Capitol Mall, which is between both the House and the Senate, which should be in session debating. A, uh, a budget that could include a proposal to raise teacher salaries by 20% over the next uh, three years. Right. Let's talk about what the teachers are demanding. And this is being done with the grassroots group, uh, Arizona Educators United, hashtag Red for Ed movement. Yes, the Arizona Educators United created the hashtag Red for Ed movement in some conjunction with the teachers union. There's a little discussion and debate about how joined up those two groups are. Either way, they have a list of demands that included a 20% raise immediately, as well as some other things, uh, uh, stopping any tax cuts until education funding reaches uh, what they consider to be an adequate level, raising uh, salaries for everyone who's not a teacher but works at the school, you know, the classified staff, custodians, librarians, etc., and trying to just restore many of the cuts that uh, our state schools have seen over the last few years since the recession. With over 57,000 votes cast and tallied, 78% of the school employees in this state said yes. You mentioned the teachers union. When they voted on this, it was a vote between the Arizona Educators United and the Arizona Education Association, the teachers union, and it resulted in about 78% of total teachers wanting in favor of the walkout? Yes, that was the vote. We uh released uh, 
last Thursday evening. That was the, the result. Uh, the vote was taken between that grassroots group, I think, with the help, I mean, the, the mechanism, uh, the, the tally was at the uh, teachers' union offices. But I will tell you, a sidelight of that, there are some Republican lawmakers here who believe the groups are tied in and that there is some sort of conspiring to produce a union-mandated result and that the teachers are being used as puppets, essentially, in this in this game, this political game. It's a position that the, the governor, Doug Ducey, had said as recently as uh, two weeks ago a couple Tuesdays ago on a radio station, that all of this effort by the teachers was a political circus and a theater. However, the result is it does seem that we are going to see thousands of teachers, more than 800,000, walk off the job and come to the state capitol. What I've heard from teachers is that they don't want to walk out. They want to solve this problem. Now, I'll tell you, the people that are playing politics, they want to walk out. How does Governor Doug Ducey fit into all this? I've seen that he has agreed to a 20% raise, not immediately, but over the course of the next three years. Uh, I think 9% uh, on top of a 1% that's already there, and then 5 and 5 in the following years. Uh, teachers are not obviously happy with that? Well, I think there are some, obviously, the, those that voted, the overwhelming majority, were not happy with that plan. Uh, initially, there was some thought that, oh, well, this is better than nothing, that the proposal sounded good on its face, that he was you know, trying to meet them halfway. As people dove into the weeds and the financial backing of the plan, some of the groups, uh, especially some of the teachers' groups that literally supported it, backed away, saying that this uh, was unsustainable, that there was uh, no guarantee that the, the future raises would come, or that if we reached the economic downturn, they would be the first to be cut, that this would leave the state in a financial hole. There were some Republicans also who were concerned even about, A, the sustainability of it, tying the state to these large expenditures based on what the governor was saying was a, a flush of cash that we had now. Uh, the governor's office believes that the good times are going to keep rolling and, and the money is going to keep rolling in through uh, tax revenues, but there's some... Uh, education groups, and there's some Republican lawmakers who don't see the numbers as rosy as the governor's office. Following some of your reporting, uh, the governor has gone full court press with this. I mean, he's been trying to sell it on radio, TV. Uh, he has his own hashtag, 20 by 2020. So he's been trying to sell this pretty hard. Yes, uh, there have been an odd number of made-for-TV, made-for-media events as soon as this was rolled out. There were conference calls with reporters where we were allowed to dive as deeply into the numbers as we wished with financial analysts who worked for the governor's office and uh, economists who worked for uh, Arizona State University here. They have had news conferences out here at the Capitol with business leaders, with superintendents, and the most recent has been uh, over the last weekend, there has been running pretty pretty frequently, I'm sure it's airing right now somewhere in Arizona, a commercial which touts this plan. It's paid for by the Republican Governors Association, and it touts that Governor Doug Ducey has figured out a way to uh, improve the state schools without raising taxes. So it has been a full-court sales job by the governor to get this thing done. It seemed, from some of the sales job he'd been doing, including a conference call with some voters, he had hoped uh, his office said he was optimistic it would have been done a little quicker than it has been going. And one of the biggest uncertainties of this is how long it will last. I know the big call is for Thursday, but a lot of schools are going to be closed on Friday as well. There was a big walkouts in Oklahoma and West Virginia. Those lasted about nine days. That's one of these big hanging things. We don't know exactly how long it'll be extended. We don't know how long it will go. 
And our reporting has shown, you know, some of the reporters who've talked to the different types of students, the different populations that are going to be affected by this walkout, developmentally disabled uh, students, for example, their parents are telling our reporters that they can't just have them at their house. Uh, you know, the school is, is necessary, a place to, to, to take care of, of, the, of the children. There's a, a bunch of students who depend on the school system for food. And so, right, there's a lot of volunteer work being done, a lot of uh, crowdsourcing of daycare centers and, and people who are willing to watch each other kids, but just at a practical level, yeah, maybe that is okay for Thursday or Friday. If we start talking about it going into next week or the week after, who knows how long those systems, those volunteer systems will hold up. Have teachers signaled that the walkouts will continue until this gets re- resolved or they're willing to come to the table and make some compromises in the meantime, at least? That is not clear. They have just said there will be a walkout. They have not set a uh, feeling on it. And as far as coming to the table, the two groups, especially the grassroots groups, Arizona Educators United, the Red for Red folks, they have been asking to meet with the governor's office. The governor's office has said uh, so far they are not willing to meet with those leaders. They say they're meeting with some teachers, but they're really focused on meeting with what, what the governor has called decision makers, superintendents. And this week, he's concentrating on meeting with uh, members of the legislature hoping that something can get passed in short order. Has there been any backlash from parents uh, on teachers? I I know people are supportive of higher teacher pay, but I know this puts a kink in a lot of people's schedules and plans. We've we've talked to some parents. uh, We've talked to some teachers who were not in favor of a walkout. There were still this week three scheduled walk-ins where there were going to be rallies outside schools and there were some shows of support over freeway overpasses, you know, uh, honk to support Red for Red. So there's still support out there. But again, when the reality hits of what a walkout will look like, who knows how parents will react and if if there's a backlash, what effect that does have on, on the teacher community. We'll stay tuned throughout the rest of the day to see how these walkouts develop. Richard Ruelas is a reporter for the Arizona Republic. I hope these institutions, our museum and our memorial, motivate a lot of people to say never again. And when they say never again, I hope they actualize that by creating a society where we can truly achieve more justice, more equality, more fairness. A first of its kind memorial is opening today. The National Memorial for Peace and Justice will become the nation's first memorial dedicated to the legacy of enslaved black people people terrorized by lynching, African-Americans humiliated by racial segregation and Jim Crow, and people of color burdened with contemporary presumptions of guilt and police violence. Joining us now is Jason Ward. He's a professor of history at Mississippi State University and the author of Hanging Bridge, Racial Violence and America's Civil Rights Century. Thanks for joining us, Jason. So let's start off by talking about this memorial. The imagery of it sounds amazing. Can you run us down uh, what it's going to look like? So the memorial is at the heart of the larger project uh, that you just mentioned, that there's a a museum um, that covers uh, racial discrimination and oppression from enslavement through modern and contemporary issues like mass incarceration. But at the heart of it, and certainly at the heart of the Equal Justice Initiative's research over the past almost decade has been this process of documenting 
cases of what they call racial terror lynchings uh, across the South and around the country. So the memorial site at the center of this, this larger complex is a memorial structure with a monument for each of the 805 counties where EJI has documented at least one uh, lynching by their by their own definition by their research and they've uh, the Equal Justice Initiative you know looking through all their research they've documented about four thousand four hundred deaths and counting and they're still they're still going through stuff. That's correct and and the count which is lynching lynching historians refer to. Uh, this count and this evolving database is always growing. I mean, that's the one consistent is across decades. And and you've had institutions like uh, Tuskegee in Alabama or uh, newspapers or civil rights organizations like the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, activists like Ada B. Wells, who have been counting and been documenting um, for well over a century what is consistent, um, although these organizations and activists will differ in their definition of lynching, uh, legal definitions of what constitutes lynching or mob violence may differ. The one consistent across the century is that every time someone counts, the count grows higher. Talking about the imagery of this, these are six foot high columns from the descriptions I've been seeing. When you start walking into it, they're at eye level and then the floor descends. So by the when you reach the end of it, you're almost looking up at these hanging columns, uh, you know, symbolizing these these people that were lynched. Yes, and that's that's really the dominant imagery and the 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 dominant connotation of lynching is the association with hanging, particularly hanging uh, victims from trees. Uh, hanging victims from other physical structures like bridges, and lynching encompassed any number of methods of execution, but that is certainly the one that's the most evocative uh, and most closely associated with lynching. So that's a that's a very intentional, very evocative, very uh, emotionally compelling design feature of the new memorial. One thing that I found very interesting is that there's almost a challenge that the Equal Justice Initiative has posed to these counties. They have the main memorial and, and, and where all the columns are at, but they have duplicate columns around it. And these are so that the counties where these lynchings took place, they can claim these, and I, I guess the thought is to erect them there in those counties. Yes, it's, a, it's an invitation, and it is a challenge to those local communities, those local officials, to acknowledge and at the very least decide uh, what they will do. And that is, there's a timestamp on that because the longer you wait to address it and deal with it and potentially make the effort to claim the duplicate monument and bring it home, the the more other counties, the the more some other communities may have taken the lead and and, and taken advantage of that opportunity. It's an ingenious way of incentivizing public history and memorialization, but it's also a challenge to, to initiate those conversations if you have not already done so. Have a discussion about historical uh, memorials if you have not already initiated that discussion. And overwhelmingly, these communities have not. You wrote an op-ed. It sounded like you want 
uh, Mississippi to claim one of these monuments for Clark County. I think the monument that you or the some of the people that you mentioned were Ernest Green and Charlie Lang, among eight others who were also lynched there in Clark County. I wrote a book about a lynching site in Clark County, Mississippi, where at this one river bridge, six victims that we know of were lynched. Four were lynched, two men, two young women, the women believed to be pregnant. All four of them were lynched in 1918. Uh, And then in 1942, a boy who was 14 and a boy who who had just turned 15 were lynched after they crossed paths with a white girl on her way home from school and word spread that they had bothered her in some way, and they were charged with attempted rape. And then they were taken from the jail several days later by a small group of men. The point I wanted to emphasize with the lynching of the two boys in 1942 is that, one, that's relatively late in the history of lynching. The two victims were uh, quite young, same age as Emmett Till, roughly, who was lynched 13 years later in Mississippi. Uh, And then the final point was that they were abducted from a jail that they were put in on specious charges by local officials. They were allowed to be abducted from the jail by local officials who were the only ones with keys. And then despite an FBI investigation, multiple journalists visits to this area to ask around and ask questions, um, despite all the scrutiny, no one was willing to help identify the people responsible. So community memorialization, a collective acknowledgement and of this history is important because the, the community has always been involved in these cases. It's not just that large crowds may have participated or watched a lynching in you know, the 1900s or the 19-teens or the 1920s, but it took a community to cover up and to prevent any kind of prosecution. And it also took the officials that communities elected to allow these types of things to occur without any kind of repercussion. And the museum and the memorial is really kind of an evolution of a story. You know, it starts with the slavery system and the lynchings, uh, Jim Crow era, and it comes all the way into this era of mass incarceration that we're in now. A lot of these equal justice initiative lawyers, people who, you know, working on this project, they're all lawyers and they have clients that are in the system right now. They're trying to shine a light on that as well. That's true. And they're also making claims about the connections between what happens in the past and what happens in the present. It's a it's an ongoing narrative of a history that's not finished. Uh, Jason Ward, thank you very much. He is a professor of history at Mississippi State University and the author of Hanging Bridge, Racial Violence and America's Civil Rights. We knew we could and should solve it using the most innovative DNA technology available at this time. The answer has always been in Sacramento. He's been called the East Area Rapist, the original Night Stalker, the Diamond Knot Killer, and the Golden State Killer. After decades of dead ends, the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department arrested 72-year-old Joseph James D'Angelo who was believed to be the serial rapist and murderer, suspected of 12 homicides and nearly 50 rapes throughout Northern and Southern California in the 70s and 80s. A former police officer, 
D'Angelo was arrested at his home after DNA linked him to four killings in Sacramento and Ventura counties. He has been initially charged with four counts of murder and could face dozens more. D'Angelo is believed to have been fired from the Auburn Police Department in 1979 for shoplifting a hammer and a can of dog repellent. It is believed his first murder victims were Brian and Katie Majori, who were chased down and killed while walking their dog in the Rancher Cordova neighborhood on February 2, 1978. The FBI believe his last crime was committed in May 1986 with the murder of an 18-year-old girl in Irvine. He was known to call and taunt some of his victims. The arrest comes months after the release of journalist and author Michelle McNamara's posthumous crime book about the Golden State Killer titled I'll Be Gone in the Dark. The book was released in February and was co-authored by her husband, actor Patton Oswald, and fellow journalist Billy Jensen after her death in 2016. Tomorrow we will dive into this true crime story that may have finally been solved. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>